Hi, this is Dee Wallace, and you're listening to the Then Is Now podcast. Warning, warning. Today's episode contains spoilers. So if you have not seen the movie or TV show that we are talking about, we highly recommend that you watch it first, then listen to this episode. Thank you. Rise and shine, my sinners. When Father Evil starts his day, he gets a little deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee has the richest, smoothest flavor you'll find anywhere. It's sinfully delicious. Once you go deadly, you never go back. Order yours at getdeadly.com. Coffee's so good, it's scary. All right, folks, welcome to part two of our discussion on Paul Nash's films for our 2023 13 Days of Hallowtober. Joining me, of course, is Rod Barnett. And uh, up next, we are going to discuss The Hunchback of the Morgue from 1973. Death is on its way. Beware. The Hunchback of the Morgue. A freak of nature. A slave with a body broken from torture. A maniac with crimes beyond your wildest terrors. What kind of underground horror chamber is he building? What kind of monster is he creating? Why does he need more and more flesh? Who is he? What is his weird secret? The secret that strangles an entire city with fear. The secret you'll remember all the way to your coffin. The secret that made him the hunchback of the moor. Paul Nashi plays a hunchback with below-average intelligence who works at the morgue. He's in love with a sickly girl who happens to be the only person who's kind to him. Each day he brings her flowers until the day she dies. He never really accepts her death and believes she's just sleeping. The girl eventually ends up at the morgue where she's being prepared for burial. Nashi's character flips out at the desecration of the girl's body and stabs and decapitates the men. The police begin to look for him, and this is when the hunchback meets up with a mad scientist whose work isn't accepted by general society. The scientist promises the hunchback that he'll reanimate the girl's body if the hunchback can bring him fresh body parts from the graveyard and live victims. He uses those parts to create a monster. So uh, this was directed by Javier Aguirre. Is that correct? Uh, Yes. Uh, An an accomplished uh, Spanish filmmaker who uh, only worked with Nashi on two different films. 
uh, this one and Count Dracula's Great Love. Um, they're, they're, they're two great, they're two great, uh, two great movies, but, uh, yeah, he, he was, uh, an amazing filmmaker and one would, one would have to say that, uh, I'll, I'll be very clear here. Uh, Hunchback of the Morgue is one of Nashie's best horror films. Uh, in, inevitably it ends up in the top five for me. And I've often talked about how, uh, you catch me on the wrong day and I'll put it above, uh, horror rises from the tomb, but it's, uh, it's an astonishing piece of work. And it is one of the, it is one of the films where Nashi was actually uh, so good in it, he actually did win a Best Actor award for the character at the uh, 1973 Paris Festival of Fantastic Films. He is very good. He elicits a lot of sympathy in his performance, and uh, one feels that it's almost—it's it, it, just another version of—it's uh, the 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 sympathy he's trying to elicit with the Valdemar Dinsky character so often. As that reluctant that reluctant monster, in this case, it's the a similar thing, only more so because this character is, as as stated in the synopsis, he's clearly someone with uh, a mental impairment, and those uh, rages that come out of him from time to time uh, just just emphasize that. Uh, the thing about this is, if you if you want to approach this as as a, a, a classic horror film in its structure and the way it's built, the best way to look at it is um, this is a mad scientist story told primarily from the perspective of the hunched back assistant. Right. Now, the, it doesn't make itself clear that it is a mad scientist story until a fair piece into the narrative because we spend the first almost third of the movie with the hunchback character, getting to know him, seeing him, um, uh, seeing this woman that he loves, seeing him, uh, be as sympathetic toward her and as caring toward her as that, as he can be before she, uh, before she passes away from, um, the, the disease that's been wasting her away. And then the mad scientist enters the story and, Things take off like a rocket ship. Uh, the madness in this movie and the spiraling craziness in this film is kind of difficult to explain to a first-time viewer other than to just express the fact that you ain't got no idea what you're going to see. Right. It's crazy. And uh, by that, by that, I don't mean that the film doesn't make any sense or that it's crazy or there's some bizarre narrative leaps. I'm just going to show you that it leads you. I'm just going to say it does this. It, it leads you carefully down a path that becomes crazier and crazier about every 10 to 15 minutes until you get to the final 15 minutes. And you can hardly believe that you've bought everything that's happened up to this point because you are now in Crazyville. Yep. <laughs> uh, there, there are. This is one of the few Paul Nashie films that I can clearly tell you, and I'm not going to give too much away here because I think that the the, the, the cleaner you can come into a viewing of this, the, the less anticipatory information you've been given, the better. Yeah. But there does come a point in the latter third of the film when we get into H.P. Lovecraft territory. There's madness afoot. And there are, uh, let's just say that there is an extra creature in this movie 
that uh, at one point slams open a door and gets in your face. And it's a glory to behold. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And this is Nashy again, sort of like what he did with the mummy. He's taking an even lesser known monster, the hunchback. Uh, yeah. In this case, his name's Goto. And, uh, you know, and he elevates him with his acting and, and really turns him into, like, I think, what, in the original Hunchback movies uh, and the stories, he kind of tries to be a hero, even though the, the pretty girl ends up with the dashing young man anyways. Um, but in this, he's far from a hero. <laughs> no, no. And that's the thing is the movie does kind of get you on his side. Right. You have a lot of sympathy for him at the beginning. Until you can no longer really, as an audience member, find a way to justify the things that he's doing. Yeah. To, to, to his mind, the thing that will give him back his, his beloved. Because we all know it ain't happening. Right. <laughs> we're, all, we're all aware from the beginning, there is no way this guy's resurrecting your beloved female here. He is lying to you. Right. <laughs> but he believes it long enough to commit heinous crime after heinous crime um, that you can, that you really cannot forgive him for. There, there are terrible, terrible things that get that get done here. And, um, you know, don't get me wrong, all at the behest, all of the, the most horrible things that happen are all at the behest of the mad scientist character. But that doesn't change the fact that this, this horrible hunchback really does turn into a a, a, a villain of a sort. He's not the he's not the big bad, but he's he's pretty bad. And the fact that the movie wants you to follow this character down that path and can manage it is really impressive. And you know what what John Wick can do with a pencil, a Goto can do with a bouquet of flowers. So, <laughs> well, I mean, I, I do I do love that moment where <laughs> there's there's a there's a part of you that. Kind of sense this was a bad idea when those when those medical students start started uh, taunting him and insulting him. Right. And it's, like, it's like, man, I don't know that that's the smartest move. Have you looked at this guy? I mean, don't I don't know that it's a good idea to piss him off. You might regret. The, oh yes, you're going to regret this. Oh yes, I can see now that regret is in your eyes as you're. Okay. Good, good. And I thought one of the, the genius elements of the film was its ability to sort of, like you said, you know, ropes you in and gets you on his side at first. And, you know, there's a scene where these little kids towards the beginning are throwing rocks at him, making fun of him. And it's both equally funny and sad at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you, you really do feel a large measure of sympathy for the poor guy. And then, like I say, his, it, it is him being taken advantage of by someone else. Try, you know, using him to their own ends, but it doesn't, it, you know, it, it does, no matter what, eventually push you away right. from the, the character. You can no longer be on his side because of what he's doing. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And folks, uh, you know, I watch this on Blu-ray and I recommend um, you watch the uncensored version on Blu-ray and um, Rod, also, I listened to your commentary and I don't, you don't need to rehash it because obviously people should buy the film, the DVD to, you know, hear your commentary. But I had a question. You, you had some interesting things to say about the rat sequence, um, which they end up, um, unfortunately killing some real rats in the making of the film. But some of the rats are leaping up and attacking him. Is is that a real thing or how did they do that? Um, well, let's just say that, um, uh, from what we from what we are told from various people involved in the making of the film, that was not expected. 
uh, the the uh, there the during the filming of that sequence, uh, the the rats were you know played a part of it because what the in in the narrative what we have here is the uh, the slowly decomposing corpse of his beloved, of course does eventually start to draw the rats in the in the crypt where she's being you know where she's being stored, and um, Goto. Real, you know, c- comes in, realizes this, and flips out and starts, you know, brushing and throwing the rats off of her, and the rats start to attack him. Well, this is uh, th- th- this is a bit of uh, v- verisimilitude creeping into this film because yes, those things were actually biting, uh, uh, jumping up and biting him. <laughs> These things were <laughs> happening. What it is is there was a, they had a rat wrangler who. Uh, had, had managed to you know to gather the rest they would need for these sequences and was and was using you know it was placing them and getting them into position and things like this. But what you see there on screen uh, at certain certain of those shots, that really is the actor trying to protect himself from creatures that are in actuality doing what you're seeing, seeing there on screen, which is jumping up and attacking. Good lord! <laughs> uh, and of course, that does not change the fact that, uh, as you will run across in a number of European films during this period, and even even further into the '80s and '90s, these are real animals being killed on screen in front of you. Uh, you know, right? Sna- you know, snakes would get chopped in half. Um, you know, animals would be shot. Pigs would be. You know, you, you would be present during the the, uh, the slaughter of a pig for uh, you know to be rendered into food and things like that, and it would just be another element in a film uh, you you will watch the uh, you will watch a, a, a pig being rendered down for food in his fantastic giallo uh, blue eyes of the broken doll if you watch that so there is uh, there is sometimes animal cruelty or animal uh, animal death in these films and in this case um, when he does set some of these rats on fire trying to get them off of them trying to get them off of himself um, yeah, th- those are real rats that are being set on fire, and it is, you know, I can understand being squeamish about that and that being a no-go zone for you as a viewer. It can be a bit much, but, uh, yeah, that's real. And uh, take, take it for what it is and just be aware. Amazing. Oh, my God. Yeah, so, you know, folks, I, I this is definitely, as we both just gushed over this film is definitely enjoyable i personally i feel like you should probably watch some of nash's other films first because this one is is very visceral but his acting yeah. is so it was what year was this movie um it was produced in 73 if memory serves yeah oh, okay yeah because yeah, his acting is so great in this movie and I, I highly recommend it especially the uncensored version you know rod final thoughts on the hunchback of the morgue uh, simply a great movie. Uh, Hunchback in the Morgue is um, it's it's one of those unexpected little joys because um, the when I when I was younger and concentrating on Nash's films, I kind of stayed in the werewolf realm unless I stumbled across something else. What I was actively seeking out were those supernatural werewolf films, and so for a long time I would see that the title Hunchback in the Morgan and think, wow, you know, that's kind of enticing. <laughs> yeah. A, a Hunchback in the Morgan, that sounds really interesting. And then when I was finally able to see it, I was like, wow, this is, this is way better than I thought it was. Going to be. This is a, you know, this is an honest step above. And I had read, you know, I had read, you know, very glowing reviews of it in different places. But then when you see it and realize just what a crazy ride it is uh, there, you know, like I say, it's another one of those films that he made where, 
the 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 final act is not something that you were going to be able to predict from the first act. Just right. not at all. Right. And uh, it, it's it's a, it's a great introduction to different aspects of his monster films. But yeah, I agree with you. I would not start with Hunchback. I would make it like your, I don't know, third, fourth, or fifth film because it's very good. But it's good to get a grounding in what you're looking at before you see him play a character who is uh, mentally challenged in this way and still manages to elicit a large amount of sympathy from him. You'll you'll, you'll be able to, at that point, to have seen uh, him playing normal characters, villainous characters, and good guy characters kind of in equal measure, and then you'll get to see him play something very different. Excellent, excellent. All right, folks, we're going to take another break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about El Caminante, a.k.a. The Devil Incarnate, or The Traveler, from 1979. The devil, following in the footsteps of Christ, decides to become flesh and take a stroll around Earth to see how humans have progressed and have a little fun creating havoc and mayhem along the way. Now, of course, this movie was directed by Paul Nashi and written by him and Eduardo Targioni. Um, do you know anything about him? You know, I can't remember off the top of my head what I've learned in the past about that particular person, I'm going to admit. I can't <laughs> okay. remember at this point, yeah. Um, I did watch the Blu-ray version of this, and um, I, I'd seen it before. I think after you guys covered it on Nashi Cast, I um, I sought it out and watched it. Um, I, this is really, I mean, this is is Nashi bringing his complete A game. Not not that he doesn't up to oh, this yeah. point, but I mean, this is sort of like the culmination of everything he's done previously. This is 1979, right? Yes, yes, and uh, this is uh, well after the uh, the Spanish horror movie boom has kind of gone bust because of the change. Uh, once uh, the, the dictator Franco passed away, um, the, uh, the the censorship was slowly uh, slowly removed from Spanish filmmakers, and therefore uh, the the uh, the having to hide behind uh, making a horror film to talk about uh, things that you might have wanted to talk about as a Spanish filmmaker. Those needs dropped away, and so people were able to be much more open and, and make films that were, were directly on point about what they were wanting to do. And this changed uh, greatly the way the, the way that fun, film financing took place within Spain. It started to make things more difficult. He was not able to get as many films produced, but he was. Uh, but he he did have ambitions to make more than just horror movies, which which had been true all along in his in his career. But by the late 70s, he was doing that. And this is one of a couple of movies that uh, I have always felt when we finally got to these movies, when we were going through uh, all of his work on the Nashi cast, when we got to this movie and another film, uh, The Frenchman's Garden, uh, we discovered that, holy crap, this and The Frenchman's Garden are the kinds of films that you would expect to see in the Criterion Collection. Right. These are exceptional movies. These are not movies that you have to look upon with uh, the, the jaundiced eye of a, of a fan of a particular type of genre and give it a lot of leeway because you enjoy the thrills that they give you. These are just flat-out excellent movies. Um, El Caminante in particular, if if you ask me what is the best film he ever made and you, you, you force me to do it, 
not favorite, but best, this is it. Uh, El Comandante is an astonishing piece of work. It is the kind of thing that he probably needed the, the seasoning as a film lover to become the filmmaker that you see on display in this right. film. Yeah. He, you know, he not only writes, directs, and stars, this is his vision. And it's an embittered vision. It is the vision of a man who is casting a very cynical eye on humanity and the world around him. But it is an incredibly good film. I cannot stress enough how, in my mind, and in the right world, and handled properly, this would have been the kind of movie that would have got award presentations and award attention outside of Spain. But right. it just never, got, it just never got that because it never traveled. Um, strangely enough, for a film whose yeah. title is The Traveler, um, the, it, the, this is an, it's an astonishing piece of work. Um, the the, the, the story being told here, it's, it's an episodic story. It's very much in the vein of, uh, for those who, who aren't, aren't familiar with these kind of things, it is kind of a, a Canterbury Tales kind of thing. It is uh, an episodic story uh, uh, following a couple of characters, one of whom is very clearly the devil made flesh, uh, walking around and looking at uh, God's... Uh, creation and deciding what he thinks about it and taking advantage taking advantage of it doing what he wants to pushing people in certain directions asking you know asking questions and doing things uh corrupting would probably be a yes. good way to put it yeah and the uh the, the joys of watching this are uh the realization over time that all these nasty horrible things that he's doing uh, to do them, to put himself here, he has also placed himself in a position where he can be affected by these creatures. And so he is in danger at times. He, as you know, powerful as we know him to be in certain respects, um, he can be gotten. He can be um, damaged, harmed. Uh, he can be trapped. Things can happen to him. But the vast majority of this is watching him and uh, the, the poor, the poor, poor character Tomas that he uh, <laughs> rooks in as kind of his traveling companion near the end of the film, going from place to place, and um, you know essentially visiting different situations and making them worse for people to a large degree. <laughs> um, it is, it's fascinating. It's entertaining. It's a, a damning indictment of the selfishness of human beings and how that that is essentially the, uh, the central horror of human existence. And the, uh, it, it, it's, it's, I, I know that to some, some people's ears, this would sound like a, a, a just a terrible story to watch, but I guarantee you it is fascinating. You cannot take your eyes off of it. Uh, just, uh, as an aside, uh, the physical beauty of it, uh, is, is amazing. There are shots in this movie that uh, they got they got by pure they got by pure luck and chance, but that are some of the best, most amazing images that you'll ever see in Nash's career. Um, there are uh, moments in this movie where you're going to be laughing uproariously. There are just some really amusing segments, and then there are going to be other sections of the story where you cannot believe the the the, the the depravity to which you're watching a character <laughs> descend. 
Um, it's, it's an amazing piece of work. It's, in my mind, a very important piece of work. I'm very happy that now that it is available on Blu-ray, um, uh, as you said, under the, uh, the title The Devil Incarnate, uh, it, is a, uh, it, it is easy for people to see now. Uh, I just try to encourage more people to see it because this is, to my mind, um, an art film. This is a an intellectual film. This is a film that is probably, if you study movies, uh, if you count yourself uh, a student of good filmmaking and great European filmmaking, especially, this is required viewing. This is something you need to see. This is important. And to a large degree, the fact that you can say that about a Paul Nashi film, a man you know, made famous and wealthy by virtue of playing a, a werewolf um, <laughs> in, in you know, 11 or 12 movies, weirder things have happened, people, okay? Not everybody has the, the career that uh, Pierre Pasolini does. Other people come to these kinds of stories in different ways. Right. And so uh, I highly recommend El Caminante, The Trap, the Devil Incarnate, under whatever title you stumble across it. Um, it is not going to be what you expect from a Paul Nashi film if you're familiar with his horror movies. Although, I will tell you up front, this is a horror movie too, just a very different title. Right, right. I mean, it reflects Nashi's own worldview that, you know, pretty much most men are evil and will oppress other men, you know? Yes, yes. And of course, that flows directly out of his experience living in the vast majority of his life under a dictatorship. Right. Um, the, you know, he, 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 he understood what the differences were. He knew there was, there was something different that could be possible. And, um, the, 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 the hidebound nature of the culture in which he grew up in, he fought against constantly. And, uh, in, in that way, in some ways you can look upon this particular movie as his scream against human nature, uh, in, in the hopes to kind of point the way that once those shackles are removed from you as a society, you still have to govern yourself to it. Right, right. And, you know, again, we don't want to... Re- actually, I said it was a spoiler podcast but at the beginning, but we don't really want to spoil this movie because you should see it. But just to give you guys at home uh, an idea... Uh, this movie hits the ground running where, you know, if we first see Nashi uh, behind or, or through the flames of a campfire, clearly illustrating he's the devil. He stabs a guy, steals his stuff. Then there's another guy taking a dump and he smashes him on the head with a rock and steals his watermelon. <laughs> you know, yep. And that's yep. just the beginning. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and that's the thing is that he wastes zero time making sure visually and uh, narratively, you know what you're dealing with. Yeah, this is this is we're not playing around. We we want to establish things so that we can go through all of these different encounters with all these different characters and make the points along the way that slowly build into the the, the thing that we culminate. It's 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 an amazing film. Yeah, a lot of lot of great shots too. I mean, whenever he starts to get evil, really evil, there's a red light that shines on him, which I thought was brilliant. Um, and there's a particular fight sequence where he's fighting off some bad guys and um, the, the camera in the foreground, you've got what, like reeds and grass and stuff and you see the fight in the background and it's kind of obscured by the stuff, but you can still see what's going on. I just the thought that was well shot. Oh, yeah. By this time, Nashi had become more and more adept and was well aware of how framing certain shots in certain ways can, can enhance 
the effect that you're going for. It's 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 a masterpiece. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, folks. So that was uh, El Caminante, otherwise known as a. Uh, um, I lost my brain. <laughs> otherwise known as the Devil Incarnate, and um, you know we definitely recommend this. It is on Blu-ray, so you should check it out. So um, once again, we're going to take a quick break, and then next up will be our final film, and it's The Werewolf and the Yeti, also known as Night of the Howling Beast or Hall of the Mountain King from 1975. The full red moon will soon shine in the sky. The demons will come out of their hiding places, and their howls will be heard in the night announcing death. My men are afraid and do not wish to go. What mysteries lie hidden in legendary Tibet? What horrible demons terrorize men who don't think twice about risking their lives? Frightened men pray to their gods with their ritual dances against the evil spirits. The werewolf and the yeti. Karakoram is a land of ferocious and brutal men whose law is violence and crime. Listen, I don't see the bodies of Melody and the Professor. the kindest end to those prisoners in the dungeons of the palace of the Sakar Khan, where a beautiful and evil woman submits her victims to the most diabolical tortures. We saw the body of the messenger. And he wasn't killed by a wolf. It was you. In the werewolf and the yeti, there is terror, eroticism, and adventure, bringing together the audience and the actors in a nightmarish atmosphere. The werewolf and the yeti. The Yeti, the mythical being of the mountains of Tibet, meets the werewolf in a bestial and diabolical battle. No! Paul Nashi in his most recent creation of the werewolf. With Grace Mills, Sylvia Solar, and a great supporting cast. Only I know of a remedy for your illness. A remedy? What is it? There exists a magic plant with red flowers on it. When its petals are mixed with the blood of a young girl, they can cure those like you who have been contaminated by the demons of Karakaram. Love, 
werewolf and the yeti. Valdemar Daninsky goes to Tibet to, to guide for an expedition led by Professor Lacombe to look for proof that the Yeti exists. Valdemar gets separated from the main party and captured by two cannibalistic werewolf women in an ice cave who transform him into a werewolf by biting him. Valdemar's companions are kidnapped by a band of Tibetan pirates who torture their victims gruesomely, and in the film's grand climax, Valdemar, in werewolf form, gets to fight not only Sekar Khan, the leader of the bandits, but a genuine Yeti as well in a bloody hand-to-fang hand combat. Valdemar kills the Yeti by biting his throat out, but in the process, he's gravely wounded. The professor's daughter, Sylvia, who's in love with Valdemar, manages to cure him of his lycanthropy by putting a small Tibetan flower mixed with her own blood into his mouth. In the end, Valdemar changes back into a man and goes off into the sunset with Sylvia, making this the only Ombre Lobo film with a happy ending. So this was directed by Miguel Iglesias, who was credited here as M.L. Bonds. Uh, he also did Green Inferno from 1973, and Rod, probably one that you're uh, going to be talking about soon, Kilma, Queen of the Jungle from 74. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know that I'll be able to talk about that one as much as that, uh, <laughs> as much as I would probably love to, considering my uh, bizarre fascination with Jungle Girl movies. I have seen <laughs> Kilma, Queen of the Jungle, as well as uh, a, a similar film uh, made by the same director, uh, Kilma, Queen of the Amazons. Uh, you know, once I guess once you start making, uh, you know, Jungle Girl movies, you just can't stop. At least in the mid seventies. Right. But uh, <laughs> the, uh, the 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 joys of this film is uh, I knew it under the title of Night of the Howling Beast because that's what it was. That's how I saw it on uh, videotape on VHS uh, back in the early nineties. Uh, this is a movie that I'd read about for years long before I ever got to see it, <clears throat> and I have to admit. It really kind of st it really kind of stood up to what I assumed it would be when I finally got to see it because uh, whether you see it under Night of the Howling Beast or Werewolf versus the Yeti, uh, the movie promises things and then delivers them, uh, and in this case, delivers more than you kind of think that it's going to manage. Um, let's put it this way, okay. <clears throat> We've already talked about the fact that Paul Nashi was a huge fan of the Universal Horror Films. And in this, he name-checks Larry Talbot yep. <laughs> as a character name of one of the, the victims of that are part of the, the expedition up into the mountains. Um, it's, you know, it, 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 it's waving a big red flag. Just, it's like, in case no one got this, I'm going to make sure that everybody hears this name. Yeah. <laughs> and then... Uh, we, we once again enter, we, we enter the film with uh, Valdemar Daninsky, not a werewolf. He's just a guy. He's a guide. He's someone who's, uh, uh, who's good at uh, leading people into these mountainous areas. He's, uh, he's competent. He's uh, cool. He's collected. And then during the course of it, he gets infected with like Now, this film does, uh, as, that, as that plot synopsis gave away there, I mean, it's, it's one of the weirder aspects of this one that for some reason, he decided to give this this Valdemar Daninsky character a, a happy ending. He's actually able to uh, hold hands with his beloved and walk off into the to the freezing cold to die. Uh, oh, no, that's not exactly how that ending plays out. It just feels that way. Uh, <laughs> uh, but the, the path he takes along here... Uh, once again, he certainly isn't. Uh, he certainly isn't infected with lycanthropy in what you would think of as the normal way, because he's attacked by two 
women, uh, two female demons, uh, at least that's the descriptor that we get in the movie, who are somewhat bestial in nature when they attack him, but they certainly weren't bestial in nature before when they were having a minor orgy with him. Right. <laughs> And then, and so that is how he becomes infected and becomes a werewolf. Uh, this is, you know, because because the the, the story, uh, the body of the story takes place in the the, the the mountains of Tibet. We get to play around with a lot of different ideas. And of course, he steals outright not just Larry Talbot as a character name, but he steals outright the uh, the flower concept from the Werewolf of London from 1935. Right. The uh, the first of the uh, Universal films, the one that never got a sequel. Uh, he steals the whole uh, cure option for lycanthropy from that film. And so he's, once again, mining all these great ideas that fired his imagination in his youth to build his own story here. And I love this movie for a lot of reasons, uh, but one of, my, one of my favorite aspects of it is that it plays a lot like a Republic serial at times. There's yeah. a lot of action in this movie. Yeah. There's a lot that goes on. And I'm not just talking about how dynamic some of the uh, werewolf attacks are with the werewolf leaping off these big rocks onto people down below. I'm talking about how we get a full-on uh, murderous death match between Saka Khan, the, uh, the, the nasty head of the bandits, and Valdemar Daninsky, not as a werewolf, but just as himself. It's a, you know, the, the, we get a lot of different times to see this character shine in different ways and not just behind werewolf makeup. Right. There's a lot. <laughs> this is another one of those films where, wow, the path here was very, very strange. We get from place to place to place and from element to element to element. You know, the, it is exactly what you'd expect. We're going to get the, the, the larger cast whittled down until there are only a couple left. But it's uh, it, it does feel like that the way they're getting whittled down is very much in the vein of an old pulp adventure story. And that is one of the things that I like so much about this because that's not an element that he played up very much in previous Denetsky stories. Right, right. And there's so many little elements in this. Like you mentioned the, the nod to Werewolf of London or the Wolfman. But um, there was also, there's a scene towards the beginning where they have a Yeti scalp. And it looks yeah. shockingly similar to a real-life scalp that's supposedly a Yeti scalp that's in, I think it's in a museum in Tibet, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, that's that's the thing. Is it, it, It's something else that uh, younger younger viewers coming to these movies who are curious... It's, it's, it's something you almost have to kind of back up and give them the, a larger, wider view of <clears throat> because it's not necessarily something they would know offhand, which is that in the 70s, people were fascinated with some crazy stuff. Yeah. The Bermuda Triangle. Yep. Noah's Ark. And let me tell you right now, Bigfoot and Yeti. Yep. And so finding a way to wedge... And I mean wedge a Yeti into this film, which, you know, is probably primarily the reason the, the film is set in the Tibetan mountains in the first place. Yeah. Was just another out, you know, just another offshoot of the, the crazies, the, 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 the oversaturation of people's interests at the time with these odder aspects, these unexplained things. 
So the cryptids were part of that. And so having a Yeti fight a werewolf, you can almost see the, the light just explode behind, uh, behind Nashi's eyes as the idea comes to it. Yeah. Which is this brilliant concept of, uh, that's something you haven't seen before. Right. I mean, you know, that's something that we get, that's going to get butts on seats. Oh, absolutely. But he he he'd already been doing things of this nature uh, before he made this movie. I mean, just the just the year or uh, year and a half before, uh, he had uh, made uh, the you know the Doctor Jekyll and the and the Wolfman, right? Which is the first time anybody had ever thought let's shove Doctor Jekyll into a werewolf story, or vice versa, you know, peanut butter versus chocolate, whatever it may be. Yeah. <laughs> and so these kind of the mashups, combinations of different elements of things, this is just a natural outgrowth of it. Which is why I think that it, it, if you if you come to this movie knowing that uh, an alternate title is Werewolf versus the Yeti, you're in the right frame of mind. Uh, right. It's gonna it's gonna it's gonna help you a lot. <laughs> but the um, the things that uh, that I always come away from this is that it's it's almost as much fun, if not more fun, during the segments of action than it is during the uh, the monster attack episode episodes throughout the storyline. It's just, it's just, it's a lot of fun, and it is one of those that uh, it, it it doesn't teeter over into uh, a little too violent for some people, but it has enough visceral blood being flung around to make it really feel good, as far as uh, giving you an impression of just how much damage is being done by this vicious monster. Oh yeah, yeah, and it's funny too when you talk about mashups. It made me think. Well, first of all, I wanted to say that. Um, and this, I think I probably watched this first of the films we talked about, so it's kind of stuck in my head. But he, in every one of his films, I love Nashi's fashion sense, especially in this one. He's got the turtleneck and the awesome jacket. It's <laughs> so 70s, but he looks so great in them, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he, he wears clothes well. He definitely fills out the, the, the costuming effect. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've got um, the some of the action music is this bongo music that is reminiscent of like the Six Million Dollar Man, which I, I love that kind of seventies bong. Even in the Incredible Hulk TV show, you had bongo action music that just it works, you know. Well, it's very very, very typical of the period. Yeah, there, yeah. There, there are you know there are musical fashions that come in and out, and that was one uh, that was definitely one that was going on right then. So. Yeah, yeah, that's that that's a good that's a good pull. That's a good spot. You're right. And speaking of the you know this Bionic Man, Steve Austin, the um, this movie was what did we say this was was seventy five? Uh, yes, the, uh, this was uh, produced in yeah. uh, seventy five and in a lot of places released in seventy five. Although I think in America it didn't actually get out on the screens until nineteen seventy seven. Okay, because in 76 was when the Bionic Man fought the Bionic Bigfoot, and I wondered if there was an inspiration from this oh, movie. Well, uh, honestly, who knows who what inspired anybody as far as the Bigfoot craze was concerned because it was so, I mean, believe me, I was a little kid at the time. You couldn't, you couldn't swing a dead toy without hitting somebody talking about Sasquatch. I'm telling you. That's now. true. <laughs> I mean, you know, all, all anybody needs to know if you want a crash course in what the, the the '70s was like as far as this kind of stuff permeating just the zeitgeist, the way people talk, the way people funk, the way things just kind of conjured up in conversations. Sit down and watch a marathon of In Search of. Yes. Yep. 
when you were mentioning all those things, I was thinking, you know, Noah's Ark and the Bigfoot. That made me right away. I thought of In Search of. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I mean, that's and that, that, that it, it just pick five random episodes, and you yeah. will get a sense of just what was coursing through people's brains when they had time to think about the world around them and right. the unknown and the crazy things that just might yeah. be true. You know? <laughs> Oh man! Of course, what you got to give Nashi props for setting up a a scene where he gets to have a threesome with hot chicks before they turn into demons. <laughs> well, it's 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 good to be the screenwriter. Yeah, exactly. There is one thing, and I won't say which character it is, but there's a character who gets impaled. And um, over on the, the, the East Meets the West, we've noticed this in a lot of Shaw Brothers movies in, in, in similar fashion. This character doesn't die right away because he's got important plot information to give out before he croaks. <laughs> well, that, that's, that's the reason he's there. He needs to suffer correctly. He's got to do it right. <laughs> Oh, man, there's so much to love about this movie. Like you said, there's so many things to it. And it, just visually, I really enjoyed this movie, too. I, lo- I thought it was it was well shot. I thought the colors were beautiful in the mountainscapes, even though, like, at the beginning, it, they, they, they're adding in wintry, you know, windy sound effects to make it seem a lot colder than it actually looked like it was. Yeah. It, it still worked. Oh, yeah. And, and they, they were able to film uh, up in the mountains. At, at different points to get you that you know to get you those snowy landscapes and then uh, they were able to film in locations where the the, the snow uh, was still melting so you still got a little bit of that and you could see the the uh, the melting snow runoff that was you know that was causing little streams and rivulets here here in different places and although you you know you can never really believe that they're actually in Tibet they they fake it well enough for you to for you to kind of give it the benefit of the doubt right right. Um, just before we, we wrap this up, I wanted to ask you a couple of things about the cast. Um, first of all, we got, it was, a, it was a short, a small part at the beginning of the movie. A character named Joel was played by Victor Israel. And man, he's got these crazy eyes. Where have we seen him before? He's must, he's a character, right? He's been in tons of stuff. Okay. You have, you've stepped onto a landmine. <laughs> I, I, I apologize for the explosion that you're about to witness. Victor Israel is one of my favorite character actors from Spain. He is unmistakable. He has such a strange look. He's got that weird thing going on with his eyes. He's got a weird face. He's unmistakable. Unless you hide him behind facial hair. I have been fooled at times that I was looking uh, (laughs) at Victor Israel or not because they'll hide him behind some facial hair or change his hair, put a hat on his head. And it's always, those are shocking moments. But most of the time, you spot you can spot Victor Israel a freaking mile off. <clears throat> he's always a bit player. He's always someone with a supporting role. He's always someone who's there to just make things more interesting to one degree or another. I love Victor Israel. Where you may have seen him first was probably in Horror Express. Oh um, yes, yeah. He's the baggage man who gets uh, who gets a little too curious about that box. He's he's enticed by the Peter Cushing character to open the uh, the box. Right. Containing the uh, the monster and uh, ends up getting uh, ends up end up paying the price. Um, so that's where you may have first seen Victor Israel. But if you watch enough of these movies from this period and from Europe, you're going to end up seeing him in oh I don't know a thousand different movies. 
Um, a lot of a lot of people. There's a there's a wonderful terrible movie called Hell of the Living Dead, in which he plays a zombie priest yep. in 1980. Um, uh, he, he pops up in uh, the first place I ever saw him in a Nashi film was a is a, a a pretty terrible crime film called Crimson. It's a French film that Nashi uh, starred in but didn't write. Uh, he's he's almost unrecognizable in that one, but. He's one of those great character actors who seem to be able, they would just stick him into any role whatsoever, and he seemed to be able to pull it off. It's really kind of weird. <laughs> uh, I recently uh, watched the Blu-ray that just finally came out of uh, the, uh, the Spanish horror film from 1973 called The Witch's Mountain. And it's like, oh, yeah, crap, he's in this thing as well. He's just one of those guys <laughs> that, that you forget about until you're like, oh, yeah, there's Victor Israel. And you like look, start looking through movie after movie after movie. I mean, I think in 1971 alone, he was in 12 movies. Wow. And I, I'm not, and I'm not kidding. I may be, I may be underestimating. Um, he was a utility player, someone you could count on to do a good job and to be memorable and solid in the role. Um, he has a great, he has a great, sometimes he got really good juicy roles too. Victor Israel has a nice little role. It's a little supporting role. In the, the House That Screamed, one of the greatest of the Spanish horror films from 1969. Oh, okay, and yeah. He, he's, he's just, he's very good there. But he's very good in any role that they put him in. You know, you're going to see him pop up in spaghetti westerns. and uh, he, he is even someone who popped up as a taxi driver in an episode of I Spy that was shot in Spain in the late 60s. I, I, I think the number of credits that, that Victor <laughs> Israel has... Um, Man, I think it's it's over two hundred. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking at his IMDb yeah. right now. It says two fifteen at yeah. least according to this. Yeah, exactly. He, he so, was in I mean, White Comanche with Shatner. <laughs> exactly. He played he played a uh, he played a hired assassin in that movie. That's right. He's incredible. He's what, what what can you say other than oh yeah, Victor Israel? There should there should be a podcast built around just just like taking three movies he has bit roles in and talking about for an hour. It's <laughs> right. so, <laughs> he's in one that I'm going to be writing about soon in my, I'm doing a blog about 1970s horror films and it's called the Ancines Woods. And I didn't ah, realize yes. he was in that. So I'm going to have to definitely. Yes, yes, yes. So, oh man, well, this has been so much fun, Rod. What, what are your final thoughts on the, um, the werewolf versus the Yeti? Or well, it was one of the, the Yeti. <laughs> werewolf and the Yeti. It's one of the very first of the Nashi films I ever caught. Um, uh, I managed to buy the VHS tape of it when a mom and pop video store was shutting down in the early 90s. Um, I have, to one degree or another, watched and rewatched the film more times than I can count. And uh, it is, I don't know that I would call it the best of the Daninsky werewolf films, um, but it is pretty amazing. And it's certainly going to be one that is, it could be seen as a really good introduction to the character and to the themes that Nashi was playing with, because, I mean, as we've already established, you don't necessarily need to watch the Valdemar Lewinsky films in any particular order, because he, 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 he certainly wasn't trying to craft any kind of ongoing narrative from film to film. Right. Um, but if, if, let's put it this way, if uh, Werewolf vs. the Yeti was the first Daninsky film you saw, You'd be getting off to a good start. It's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, I loved this movie, especially this time around watching it. You know, well-paced from beginning to end, just completely enjoyable. 
Um, I'm trying to recall. I, I feel like I may have caught it on late night TV, probably when it was, um, uh, what do you call it, the Night of the Howling Beast. It's possible. It's very possible. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they would, but, they, they would have had to do some trimming here and there. Even even in the clothed version, uh, even in the clothed version of the film, I think that there's a there's a there's a little too the, some of the clothing gets a little too diaphanous with those details, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I definitely recommend folks should check this one out, too. So, all right, Rod. Well, thank you so much for joining me once again this year on our uh, special annual 13 Days of Hallowtober event. Glad to be here. Glad. Uh, thank you for inviting me. It was a blast to do. Awesome. Awesome. So where can the listeners find you online? Oh, God. Uh, the, everything. There's a great jumping off point, which would be the, uh, the, the blog page I maintain, which is the Bloody Pit of Rod. Uh, you can find links to all the podcasts from there. I, uh, I also post the occasional uh, text piece where I'm ruminating about some film or another. So that's a good jumping off point. There's also a, a blog page for just the Nashy cast stuff. Just want to scroll through that and, and see what appeals to you. And of course, you know, the, all the all the podcast players are embedded in those sites as well. And so uh, that's a good place. Uh, the Wild Wild Podcast is something that. Uh, um, my buddy Adrian and I do as well, and that online pretty effectively. Just search for Wild Wild Podcast, and I think we're pretty much the first or second thing that comes up because who's been crazy enough to decide to use that as a title? Um, <laughs> the <laughs> those are the those are the big places, and you will still occasionally find uh, me and one cohort or another popping up on a Blu-ray of genre madness as a commentator. So uh, that is true as well. Awesome, awesome. That is so great. Well, folks, that's all the time we have for today's episode of this year's 13 Days of Hallowtober. Don't forget to check out our website at havenpodcasts.com, where you'll find our other shows, The East Meets the West, in which we discuss Shaw Brothers Kung Fu films and spaghetti westerns from the 60s to the 80s, and The Cult Movie Lounge, where we talk about all cult movies all the time. And check out our live monthly streaming show, Fright Lounge, in which the best horrorologists in town discuss horror media for the seasoned horror fan, as well as introducing newbies to the genre. And at our website, you can also find my blogs, Then Is Now, The Films of John Saxon, and Horror Films of the 1970s. If you like what you're hearing, please go to wherever you download your podcast from and leave us a great review so that other listeners can find us. Thank you for joining us today, and have a wonderful October. heard check out the dorkening podcast network at the dorkening.com